it sounds naive, our purpose on this earth is to be of service to each other. And um, if you do anything that feels like you help someone and you feel great when you go to bed and you can't help to smile because you help someone, you're much closer to your purpose than, than closer to living in a mansion. And that's much bigger than that. You are listening to the Journey on Earth, the podcast, where each week I, the host, Olerato, uncover journeys in wellness, business, parenthood, and so much more. I created this podcast that will not only validate and value our stories, but will motivate us to have the courage to continue to build the stories we want for ourselves. From time to time, I like bringing you some deep dive conversations with incredible guests to uncover their journeys and topics highlighted. They also share their secrets to cultivating a good life. So tune in for some good conversation every Tuesday. As one of my guests once quoted an African proverb that when you educate a man, you educate an individual. But when you educate a woman, you educate a nation. I'm always in awe of the phenomenal work women in our country continue to do for our people. And the woman I had a conversation with in this episode is just as remarkable. I first came across her story on a TEDx talk advocating for how internet access should be a basic good and a human right akin to water and electricity. She's passionate about connecting South Africans and low-income communities. And in 2017, at just 26, she became a CEO of Project Isizwe, which advocates for digital inclusion. In today's episode, I sat down with Dutum Kwanazi to uncover her journey and how it all began. From politics to tech, and we further touched on the topic I also love, motherhood and mental wellness. I do hope that you enjoy this episode. So let's head right to it. Do enjoy. First off, I want to thank you actually for agreeing to this podcast to have an interview with you. Thank you so much. We had already started on the conversation already mm. and getting to know you better. But before we actually go on, I want you to officially just... Um, introduce yourself to our listeners just who is Dudu where you come from and all that sure okay thank you for having me and thank mm-hmm. you for inviting me I, I don't say no to previous voices <laughs> but on on a serious note it's it's quite interesting because did I add you or you added me on LinkedIn I added you on on, on Instagram mm, and then you. I followed you back yes yes because I I looked your account isn't closed, right? No, no, it's I not. looked at your stories and I could resonate so much. Thank and I was you. like, oh, she's so well spoken and she articulates how she feels. That is so brave. Um, and then I was like, okay. So every now and then I look at your stories and, and, and yeah, I, I wouldn't call it stalking, but I, I do read <laughs> your past posts because I'm just like, I'm trying to understand, or at least I was trying to understand mm. um, who you are. Um, so thank you for inviting me to to do this podcast with you. So my name is Dudum Kwanazi, and I am 28 years old. <laughs> so young, by the way. Thank you. Um, I, I need to remember I'm 28 every single time when I when I fail at things. Like I'm still young. It's okay. It's okay. Um, and I am the eldest of five. Okay. I grew up in Ekuruleni in Gatlehong. I was raised by my paternal grandmother, and I am a mother of one, of two. <laughs> um, so, congratulations! Yeah. Um, and originally, I I used to think of myself as an academic. Yeah. Until until 2017, when I joined Isize, and now I'm in I'm in telecom, so at least in the ICT industry, which is quite a long story, but you know, one that I I try to summarize. Um, I'm the first in my family to actually obtain a, in my immediate family, to obtain an inter, like a degree at a university and the first in my family to go on and do an honors degree, a postgraduate degree. And, um, and the first in my family to obtain an international degree. I did my master's at the university, Université de Montpellier in the south of France. Do you know how to speak French? Un peu. Je me dis vrai en français. Yeah, oui, oui. C'est très difficile langue, mais j'aime beaucoup. I actually studied French here on my undergrad for two years mm-hmm. because I just love the language and, and because I, I was studying political science and at that time I envisioned a career in international relations and diplomacy 
And because French is the second spoken language in politics, well, in the continent, mm. I figured it was a more strategic thing for me to do. And then on my third year, it got a little bit difficult. <laughs> and then I, I left it. And lo and behold, two years later, I found myself in the middle of France. Wow. And I thought I should have continued with my French lessons. So um, things came full circle. Yeah, wow. but I I was enrolled for a bilingual program actually mm. in Montpellier. But when the French say bilingual, they mean eighty percent French. In fact, so. <laughs> <laughs> so that was and um, yeah, I lived in the south of France for eighteen months, pursuing my master's degree. Um, finished, um, graduated with honors and comparative politics and public policy. Then came back, um, worked for the Democratic Alliance, and their Gauteng office and then um, close after their local elections then the party moved me and then I worked in the private office at the MMC of shared services in the city of Joburg which was which is a DA administration I think it's still now um, and there I I was title that was registered on my payroll was an ops manager but when I got into that office it was just the MMC and her personal assistant so I was up slash political advisor slash comms and PR person in the private office of the MMC um, which was a role I enjoyed a lot um, and it just exposed me to a lot of things about politics and mm -hmm. local governments and council meetings and um, and just the the nuts and bolts of running a municipality and then It was a very short-lived experience, and then I left, um, and Ellen Nod Craig Jr. then approached me to join Isuzu, the founder of the organization. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So I then became the CEO of Isuzu in 2017, and I was 26. Yes. So it wasn't a long time ago. So they approached from politics to tech. Yes. Um, and I think because... Um, It didn't feel like a big jump until I started on day one. <laughs> Then I realized, oops, maybe it is different from politics, but not entirely because you still work or deal with politicians or work with politicians. And and I think politics is everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, but it didn't feel like a big jump for me because um, when Ellen presented to me the vision of Isizwe and why he started Isizwe, it felt like such a personal story to me. And I was, I remember we had a meeting just downstairs at the Hyatt here in Rosebank. And he said to me, in 2013, I founded this non-for-profit because I believed that internet access should be essentially a basic utility. Mm -hmm. But, and he said, you know why there's going to be the bigger gap between the rich and the poor? And he said, it, it doesn't really have much to do with our socioeconomic disparities, but As we move along, it's because of access. Those that have access to this amazing tool called the internet and those that do not. Because essentially everything is online now. And and he said, and it's called the digital divide. And if we don't bridge it, the poor people or people in low-income communities will never be able to catch up. And the more we grow with this digital innovation, the bigger and, I mean, it's just such a fast-paced environment, yeah. right? Just... Three years ago, we weren't talking about 5G and every single day you cannot wake up and not. And everyone's it. talking about 5G yeah. and everyone's talking about Wi-Fi 6. But a decade ago, not so much, right? And it just shows that it's just such a fast-paced industry. And, and the fact that there are some people somewhere in this country, a huge majority, millions, that don't even have 2G, right? And um, it was in last year's stats, they say that The, the report said 10% of South Africans, only 10% have access to fixed broadband and the comfort of their own home. So the rest of us are connecting using our mobile device. And we all know how expensive mobile data is. So to sum up my who I am, the story was very, Isisa was a very personal thing for me um, because it wasn't until... 2012 when I went to go do my master's in France my immediate family had no clue how we were going to keep in touch yeah. and my grandmother was worried airtime is expensive now she has to call Europe 
and I got a little laptop and a little dongle. I'm not sure if we still use dongles these days because there's Wi-Fi everywhere. And I downloaded Skype. And my grandmother would be able to then call me on Skype for the next 18 I, I months. I saw the video you had on um, for TED Talk. Oh, yes, I did TED. Like, <laughs> <laughs> with her and the laptop there. Oh, and yes, uh, yes. We now call her Google Google. Yeah. She's she actually, earlier when I was having lunch, video called me. Mm. Because she's so obsessed with technology. It's, it's such a thing for her. What's her experience now, actually, with technology? Her experience. She's mm. the same woman that walks into a Fushini and asks if they have have wi-fi <laughs> she i mean she you will try to get hold of my grandmother and she's running errands in town and you can't because i mean i'm not used to uh, calling her on my phone i'm used to calling whatsapp calling her and oh, i can't get hold of her oh. and then i'd call her on her phone mm. and then she'd say no but i'm in town and i'm not going to open my data mm. you know when i have wi-fi in my house <laughs> So she's she's very much aware of the price of data and the cost and the comparison and the comparison with Wi-Fi and it's it's quite shocking but it's yeah I'm I'm really proud so the internet played a very important role and I I suppose empowering my grandmother and and I suppose other gogos will never get the opportunities Mm. I mean in fact her house is the only house in the township where she stays that has access to the internet are you serious I'm serious (laughs) I mean there's a and do you get people like camping outside? Well, she she insisted we close her her network, so uh, you only you need a Wi-Fi password. Yeah. Only I have um, that that will allow you to. And and I've been begging her to open it up, and she says no, she doesn't want to attract young people. But people are aware of what the, you know. She has Wi-Fi, and obviously, when young people pass by her home, they can sense their cell phones will tell them they have a Wi-Fi there. And yeah, and I and I suppose she's pride, but I I. I keep telling her and my siblings that this is quite a privilege because everyone else does not have access to this. I love how she's carried your story. Like when you spoke about her as your mentor in life, uh, yes. I think that was so like deeply profound for me. I always think that there should be someone who supports you like 10 times more than you do because oh, yeah. sometimes I think Absolutely. that is what you need in life. So you mentioned that you were the first in your family to go to university, to go to university abroad and to also be a CEO. I want to ask you then, what responsibilities and pressures have you had to carry for being the first in your family? Because I know. <laughs> I, I know think the same black. responsibility every other young black yeah. middle class carries, right? It's it's quite an interesting one because I I don't see it more as a responsibility. I see it more as a duty. And, and I'm not sure if it, it sounds more terrible seeing it more as a duty than of a responsibility because... When someone says, oh, this responsibility is too heavy. But if you have a duty towards something, you're devoted to it. And and you feel you're more devoted to carry out your duty and you understand it's all part of your purpose. So I I understood and I, and I think I knew the time, the minute I walked into the gates of Northwest University, that I would be responsible for everyone else that will come after me. And this is because my grandmother took her life savings to pay for the first day of my of my university. And I recall moments when I'd go home during recess um, and would eat pup and cabbage and, yeah. and bones for supper, right? And, and it was with pride because, and it was, and my grandmother would not ever once complain, um, but she would then say, you know, your sister will finish school and she will get a job and things will get better. Um, but we all have to keep our heads down. Yeah. And for now, it's it's just we're all tightening our belts so she can get a scholarship or something. And and that pushed me or at least motivated me to work harder. Uh, but also it, it instilled in me that duty that when I'm done, I, I have to go back. Mm. So when they're in varsity, we don't have to sit here and eat pop and cabbage mm. and meat TV. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I crave that now. And I'm like, yo, Khalil Kavish. But it's it comes with with such great responsibility, like you said, um, and and because you're you're the first to do so many things, um, it it doesn't allow you to fail publicly, <laughs> because so many people are looking up to you, mm-hmm. um, and so you take your failures very privately. Wouldn't you say that's a pressure, though? It is. I mean, I yes. 
I mean, like I said earlier, I have to remember I'm 28. Yeah. You, you take your failures very, very personally and, and very hard. And you think everyone else can see and everyone knows. So you try to shield um, what's not going right. Um, and because you're trying to protect everyone else that comes after you. And it also, I, mean, I would say, and not, not complaining, it puts a lot of pressure on being the first one to break the teenage pregnancy cycle, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. You're not the one that fell pregnant when you were 16. You know, you, you stuck it out and you did this. And it, everyone else from your immediate family to your extended family looks at you and, and this just, I think, Yours. unrealistic pedestal. Yeah. It's really unrealistic yeah. because when when things start happening and going wrong in your own personal life, it sort of becomes a buzzwatine. And it's not buzzwatini at home, at in the streets, but at home. Yeah. Because you have your other cousin, Abam Tugangao, who goes, hey, you know, you shouldn't dare because yeah. Dudu's doing this. So... And then when someone else sees it, it's like, oh, she's human. She also has flaws. Um, so I try to push that every time I'm with the younger generation or, or cousins or even my sisters and my brothers. You know, I always say to them, it's okay. You know, it's okay to be confused. Um, I think I'm a perfectionist. I had a plan. <laughs> and to an extent, my plan failed. But, you know, God had a bigger plan for me. And and I stuck in that course. And, and it worked out. And, and to... To that degree, then I'm I'm grateful for the support I got from you guys. But yeah, I suppose people see what they see. <laughs> I think what you just spoke about also being the benchmark for all your cousins and all that, in a sense, it isolates you from the family because you end up being that outlier. I am. In that sense, also brings in the pressure of, you know, concealing everything and putting it all together, like you say. Absolutely. You always fully. have to have it together. That I I mean I in the beginning, I used to avoid family gatherings. <laughs> I used to avoid Christmas parties and 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 Me family brides and lunches, mm. and and not because I didn't want to go, because I'd I'd avoid their attention. Mm. Um, I'd avoid other people feeling less of, yeah. and I'd avoid being the reminder that they couldn't get there. Um, so I'd. I would avoid going. I I would come up with the most serious excuse. I have a migraine. I I have to be in Ghana or something. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, I'm in my bed watching Netflix. Just to avoid it for others. But now I I go and it's still a bit weird. But I I try to shy away from it. Like you said, in 2017, you became CEO of Project Isizwe. So I just want you to summarily just tell us what is Project Isizwe as you've already started off. Project Isizwe is a non-for-profit, um, a registered NPC that advocates for digital inclusion for people in low-income communities and rural areas. Um, essentially, we our model works in a sense that we get donor funding. We have, let me just say, we have private and public partners mm-hmm. um, that fund the connectivity um, of public hotspots for people in low-income communities. And the idea was actually by Eleanor Craig Jr. in 2013, who sold the dream, uh, as he'd like to call it, to the Council of Twane. Um, and Twane became, under Project Isizwe, the first municipality in Africa to mm-hmm. have a public Wi-Fi, um, free Wi-Fi, hotspots for people in low-income communities. Essentially, in Swane, we'd connect about 600,000 people a month um, to free Wi-Fi. And it was was just phenomenal because no one had ever done it before. Um, Fast forward, our contract with Swane came to an end in 2018. But when I joined Caesar in 2017, I looked at the model and I thought, Swane is a metro and Swane can fund um, well the citizens of Swane can fund the free Wi-Fi well it's free to the NGOs but obviously someone's paying for it but what about those municipalities that cannot afford to fund it right so a municipality in Limpopo or a municipality somewhere in in the northwest Mm. um, that that when you go and you you speak to the council or the mayor they have the vision to bridge the digital divide but unfortunately that is competing with water and tarred roads 
you know, and, and the basic necessities. I like what you mentioned that actually Wi-Fi should be taken as water and electricity. Exactly. It's the same thing. It, mm. it is the same thing. Mm. Because when was the last time you went to a filling station and bought a newspaper because you wanted to apply for a job? Companies it's don't list yeah. their job. Except for government. It yeah. still does because of their Z83 form. But Which annoys me so much. The weirdest thing, oh right? You get it on thing. the internet. You have to print it out. For God's sake, why? Oh my goodness. But the Minister of Communication said she'll, she'll handle that. They're working okay. on it. So hopefully we never have to do a Z83 form. But all the other companies, mm. whether private or public, they, they post their jobs on on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I recall coming back from Europe and spending a good six months unemployed and waking up every morning to go to an internet cafe when I'd run out of data on my dongle to apply for jobs. And that is the reality for a lot of young people in the township and in rural areas. Even now. And Yes, every single day. Yeah. I mean, connectivity is such a vital it's such a vital thing. I think it's a raw material for education, you know, for everything. But essentially what Isizu then does is um, after I digress, after I, I became CEO, I then looked at that and I said, we need to relook at private-public partnerships. Perhaps we don't partner with a municipality, but in each and every one of these communities, there is a private company that's running its operations a kilometer, 10 kilometers, and they have a social corporate investment responsibility to this community. And most of them have built schools, clinics, what what have you, but they need to invest in something that will yield impact. Mm. And connectivity is one of them. Um, and so we started packaging our solution or the dream as a CSI. And we now have our flagship after Twane outside of Johannesburg in Emalakini with okay. Glencore Mine, where mm-hmm. we've connected over six mining communities, I think, to free Wi-Fi. And now where we started off in Twane, we now have a footprint in seven provinces wow. with public-private partnerships. And and it's just been such an incredible journey doing this with Project Isize. And, and probably fulfilling for you as well. It's like I said, it's, it feels like a personal story because yeah. I, I go back and I look at what my family's life has been, um, how it has transformed with the power of the internet. Yeah. I mean, just last night I was, I was with my dad. I got a gift from the conference I was attending the past four days, um, a GoPro. And, and I was showing my dad I got a GoPro and he took out his phone. And he said, I want to Google how much a GoPro is. Yeah. But I look at him and I, and I'm thinking, this guy, a few years ago, he didn't even yeah. know what Google was, right? And he just flips out when any of his apps are not updated. So it's for me, it's a personal story. It, it really feels like a job. It only, I'm only reminded it's a job when I have to seek funding. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. You became CEO at 26, and mm. I really, really want to know how did it all happen. But I want to know what has been instrumental for you to build up courage and I think confidence as well in taking up this role as a CEO. I think my grandmother. And because I didn't start off as a CEO at Project Decisor, okay. I, I started off as a key accounts manager for our That's project in 20. Yes. Yeah. So I started off as a key accounts manager for a good seven months. And then after that, I was a spokesperson. Um, and that is because I I found myself in the same room because we were trying to negotiate with the city of Tony to hand over the project. And I found myself in the same room as the MMC of shared service and some journalists. And yeah, some SABC journalists needed a view from someone from Isizwe. Mm-hmm. And someone said, oh, she's from Isizwe. <laughs> And they said, would you mind giving a comment? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Um, and at that time, did it have a CEO? Anyone heading it? So, no. So okay. when I joined the uh my predecessor, Zahir Khan, had just resigned as a CEO. And Tim Genders was the COO. So my COO hired me. So I, I'm not his boss, uh, but he was, <laughs> my, he was my boss as a key accounts manager. And when I joined the I I remember... Ellen and Tim saying to me, we want to recruit a black woman to be a CEO and not for face, but because we feel for Isizwe's brand to grow and for the story to be real and authentic. 
we need someone who can relate to what is happening in South Africa and That's why true. it's important to bridge the digital divide. Um, and of course, this was another job for me and I did not see myself as a CEO, to be quite honest. Um, I, I always thought they'd get someone elderly. I mean, you, you walk in a lot of boardrooms um, and you see elderly women um, and elderly who men. leaving. You know, who are CEOs, yeah. who are in their 40s and 50s. Yeah. You don't see a 20-something. Yeah. I mean, unless you run your own startup company. Um, so in my head, it never occurred to me that the black woman was that was being referred to was me. I woke up every day, did my job, but I knew I was being groomed for something. Okay. I think we all understand when something feels out of place or mm-hmm. feels unfamiliar, but... On my first day um, of my job here at ECs was the key accounts manager. I I started off by being invited to a breakfast with one of our board members. And I had to outline my five-year career plan to him, which at the time was like, this is odd. <laughs> you know, this is odd for a non-for-profit. But I, I thought maybe they're interested because this is uh, an ICT industry and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm coming from politics, so they want to see where my head is at. And also because I'm young and you know how millennials try to, they, we get bored easily and we jump, hop every now yeah, and then. Right. So um, I didn't think much of it, but only a few months later, I could, I could realize I was getting exposed to certain sensitive parts of the organization that my counterparts or my colleagues weren't. Um, I didn't understand, I did not know why, but I, I could I could feel I was being mentored for something, okay. um, and I could I could understand um, something was happening. But yeah. did I think I was going to be um, appointed a CEO? No. Um, even when, and I recall this. It was June, very cold June. I was driving in my little old Renault to, to the office, and Tim, who's my CEO, called and he said. Right, so I had a meeting with Ellen yesterday and I was like, oh, so how did it go? I mean, Ellen is our founder and we, we all really love Ellen for the work he's, he's yeah. done with this season. And I asked him how it went. He said, it went great. So we found the CEO. So, I mean, I thought, oh, that's great. So when am I meeting her? <laughs> <laughs> so he said, you're speaking to her. So I said, oh, oh you have me on gosh. loudspeaker? <laughs> oh because I'm driving gosh. and I'm like, you have me on loudspeaker, Tim. So I'm like, hi, I'm I'm Dudu. And he said, Dudu, you are the CEO. So I, I had to park my car on the side of the road. And I was like, no, I'm sorry, Tim. I didn't quite hear that. What what were you saying? And he said, Ellen and I and, and the rest of the board spoke about this. And, and we think you'd be the great candidate. And obviously, mm-hmm. you're new in the, te- in the telecoms industry and you'd need lots of mentoring. And I was like, yes, lots, lots, and lots of classes <laughs> around, you know, because I, I said to him, to be quite honest, I look at CEOs and I think I'd have to brush up on years of my business acumen. You know, I have the other basics sorted out, but there's other things that I feel CEOs do that I need to maybe enroll at a, for a course it gives or something. Yeah. For. And he said, you have all the support, right? You have me, you have Alan and... And as you grow in the industry, you'll have other mentors and, and you'll learn. And you're a fast learner and you've been with us for seven months and, you know, we've seen great progress. And I said, I need to think about this. What? And yes. What did you have to think about? Because it's, Lerato, it's a great responsibility. I actually had lunch with a friend of mine last week and we spoke about this. And he said, I'm not sure if you think about this, Dudu, but one of the, one of your career curses is that you became an executive at a young age and mm-hmm. and I said I, I understand that and I'm very much well aware and he said oh because I didn't think you understand that because once you move away from a season you have to step up to something else so you have the pressure not only you know what people see but for yourself as well you know because as you grow in this role you also have something called ego that grows and, and and the perception in industry. So people wow. in the industry don't look at you to what your CV say. It's the perception of you. So when you leave a CESA, the perception is you're overqualified. The perception is you're expensive. So it doesn't matter what you feel. Stepping away from a CESA to something else has to be much bigger than a CESA. And you're only 28. 
So that's quite of a, a tricky one. You know, it's it's almost like a, a curse yeah. <laughs> that you've you've let. I guess there's duality in everything. There's yeah, so I had bad. to think about it. Yeah. So I I'm I'm very much well aware, and and I I I said I'm going to think about it. And I went home, and I told my grandmother once again, and and she said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "I'm going to think about it because if I fail, it will haunt me, and if I if I fail as a CEO, it'll haunt me." And the last thing I want is I became I, I become CEO and a Caesar does not grow. But by God's grace, we've we've expanded our our footprint. So I, I don't know. I have some crazy guardian angels working day and night. Um, but I had to you think too. about it, and it took me a month, an yeah. entire month, to think about it. And I kept dodging the the proposition um, up until the twenty fifth of July. I got a call from. Alan and he said, we have a board meeting and we can't wait on you any longer. You need to make a decision. And yeah, I, I thought, yeah, I will take it. And at that time, I just become a single mom and my daughter was nine months. Wow. So it was a huge responsibility for me to take, which I, I understood would take me further away from my mother duties. And there was a lot for me to, to think about and weigh. Do I take the responsibility, which would mean you know, it would give me the, the opportunity to be able to to provide for my little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, to a great extent, I will not be around. I mean, just four days ago, I was in Devon. And the next week, I'm going to go to Paris for five days. Wow. Um, I'm constantly traveling. I'm barely around. Are you able to take away, though? Um, no, only for local trips. But, you know, of course, if I'm able to travel with support, then I'm able to do that. But for international ones, not really. But I do call her every single day. She's so used to Skyping and video calling. <laughs> and I do tell her when I travel. So I'll tell her two days before the trip, mommy is going to America. Um, I'm coming back on Wednesday. So we, how many days are we counting? She's three now, so we count days. And when I get there, I will call her and I'll take pictures and I'll show her I'm in America. I'm coming back on Wednesday. I'm just reminding her every single day and just reassuring her. So I have to call before bedtime. I have to call before she goes to school. And then I come back and, yeah. And she's always telling her teachers, my mommy's gone to America. My mommy's gone to Ghana. My mommy's gone to this place. So it's quite interesting to just see how children adapt mm. she's she understands when i have to travel in the beginning it was, it was hard for both of us but that's why it wasn't easy taking the role <laughs> what did you have to quickly learn when you took over this position that cash is king the importance of cash flow i think for anyone that runs a business whether you're your own person and your own team you're the only person or oh for your organization team. yeah okay I just, I think at the time when I when I took over Caesar, we were struggling financially, <laughs> so and yeah, and I had to figure out how to stay afloat, um, because otherwise then we would have to close shop, and then I'd have to put in my CV. I was a CEO for three months. <laughs> um, what your friends spoke about. So yeah, the the pressures of. And just learning about cash flow that I feel had not only equipped me for learning to run an organization, but it also equipped me to run my own finances. Mm. Because it, before then, I, you know, I was a young person. I was just 25, living my life, you know, getting my salary <laughs> and, you know, not actually worrying much about savings and investments and et cetera. And my grandmother kept saying, you need to save, you need to save. It's only when the role became evident that I would take it. I realized, actually, this is the reality. Um, and you can't live from hand to mouth or paycheck to paycheck um, because you have a child and you have a legacy and you have, you know, you're the el- eldest of five and you have other siblings coming after you. And, you know, my brother at that time was doing his first year of his law degree and the others are still in in high school and primary school my youngest one of my younger sisters is going to be doing high school next year going to grade eight so the responsibility and then it just forced me to think what would happen if something happened to me or if if we really couldn't get funding so i learned a lot about cash flow 
And I think cash flow is very key to staying afloat in any organization, whether it's a charity or a for-profit company. Uh, yeah, that's why I'm saying cash flow is king. <laughs> what would you say then you've had to quickly unlearn about yourself in that position? That I know nothing, mm. right? That every single day I'm learning. Um, that whatever I thought I knew today was enough to create room for me to improve. Um, because I left politics thinking I understood politics. And I then joined this ICT industry. And then I had to learn um, not only about the industry, but the technical stuff. Because we were more on the infrastructure side, on the hotspots and the access points. And then I had to learn what a cambium is and what a router is. Mm. and you know, all these numbers and I had to learn about spectrum and this is all technical jargon that I, a decade ago, I, I wouldn't even be bothered to learn because I was in politics. Um, I just, I had to move away from the fact that I'm educated, you know, that stigma. Yeah. You have a master's degree, so you're smart and you know things. <laughs> um, I had to deal with that either. Yeah. Mm. So I knew that I am not as smart, yeah. right? My master's degree is just a certificate that I worked hard to understand a certain part of a certain ideology or a certain study in my life. But this is a different study that I don't know anything about. So you almost had to start from a clean slate. Not almost. I did. I did. I, I did. Sometimes when I have conversations with people in the industry or some people that are not in the industry and I speak about what I speak about and then I say, I studied politics. Everyone's like, oh, but I thought you studied psychology. Hmm. And I'm like, that's actually very interesting because sometimes I get really self-conscious about it and I'm like, what am I saying since? Do am oh. I, you know, um, but because I'm learning every single day. You are in a male-dominated field and you're a black female. Would you say there were moments where you had to prove yourself in a sense? Every single day. It happens mm-hmm. every single day. And the little things, right? From a potential donor who would rather much speak to my white counterpart mm-hmm. because he's white and he's male. English <laughs> and he's male to walking in a room and attending a conference or a panel discussion, and it's all a, a male discussion, right? And I call those manals, by the way. Manals? Yeah, it's not a panel, it's a manal. It's <laughs> just a panel of men. Um, and also, the, the just the perception of walking in a certain discussion or a dialogue. And, and because, I mean, in the first two years at ICISO, I realized women... When I would walk in and there's a woman in the room, she's usually like a manager or an accounts manager, but never an executive. Um, and then when I'd speak up and say, I am an executive from my organization, like, oh, but you're so young. We didn't realize you were so young. So I make it a point to to strive for women empowerment and okay. for women's voices in the industry. I, I won't name the name, but <laughs> it got to a point where I'd get invited to this other companies um they have a conference annually and the first time around i wrote to them and i said hold on your your speaker lineup is all male yeah that's odd um and um the second year the same thing happened and i said look you may not invite me to be the speaker and and that's okay because this is more commercial you know uh but i'm pretty sure there's women in the tech in, in the ICT industry. So I mean, Lillian Barnard is the MD yeah. of Microsoft and she's a black woman. Um, why aren't you inviting her to come speak? Um, and there's there's a lot of women in bigger organizations that are in executives or in boards that can be invited to have meaningful conversations. And they didn't respond. So I then sent an email and I said, well, please don't send me invites anymore. I will be boycotting you guys wow. <laughs> until you decide to have a, a female um, lineup or speaker. So these are, it, it sounds extreme, but these are sort of the the conversations we need to have. True. And I I do do a bit of um, hosting or emceeing, um, take events um, in my own capacity. I only focus on on tech and ICT because that is my industry and, and, and because that is the sector I'm known at now. And I don't want to do anything else because I don't want to be an MC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am do do the CEO before I'm an MC. Mm-hmm. But I, 
I, I've had to then look at, into that because we don't get invited to have the conversations or to have a seat at the table. And you end up saying, it's fine. Yeah. I'll come and host the event and I'll speak. But just so you know, when I'm speaking and I'm looking at your all-male lineup, I will voice it out that this is an all-male lineup and I'm the only female and the only female because I am your MC for the evening. <laughs> and yeah, it's, 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 these are things that I, I navigate through and, and, I, and I hope it leaves a dent um, in the sector and it, and it will help women to also have a voice. But it is a male-dominated sector. But I see amazing women coming up and doing their own thing. What has been your personal highlight in taking up this role? <sighs> wow. I, I have a lot of reflective reflection or moments of reflections about this role. Just how important relationships are. Mm-hmm. I think when I was in my previous career in politics, it was, you know. But yeah, you build relationships and I and nurturing them and sitting back and in your time of need, or maybe not, or by coincidence, having that relationship pop up and work. Um, and just humility. Mm-hmm. I, I look at moments or events that if I had approached an issue or an instant or a moment and a certain persona, how things would have gone. Um, but Mrs. Ulbasu's talk. And, yeah. and humbling myself totally had a different out, out, output. And just, yeah, the highlight was been building relationships and building meaningful relationships. Um, and relationships that I look back and I, and I at least can only hope <laughs> that they last beyond my role here. Yeah. Okay. Because only through those relationships I've learned about the industry, but I've also learned about myself mm-hmm. as a leader. And I've and I've also had a lot of questioning to do about the industry as well. Um, but how do you see a change over the years? The industry women are going to grow. Yeah. Women are going to grow in ICT. Women are are going to take the ICT sector by storm. I think, you know, the more you resist something, the more change becomes inevitable, I believe. Um, I was at the GovTech conference this past four days and they did a hackathon last Thursday and there was this group of young and all girls team that won an award Wow! and they designed an app um, on the phone like uh, these smart watches mm. that allows for parents to track where the kids are and all these sort of things and sort of sync the whole app to your phone and you're able to keep track of where your child oh. is and what your child is consuming and and etc. What is consuming as well? Yeah, wow. which I thought, I was like, I need to speak to these girls to know. I know one way you can track where they are. No, but they, they went so deep as to like stuff the child is That's consuming. Amazing. And I was like, this is so impressive. Um, and their heart rate, obviously our apps do that. But to be able to see your child's, mm. uh, uh, yeah. And I mean, the guy who was giving that word was saying only women can can master this <laughs> type of invention, you know, because we're masters of stalking <laughs> and finding things out. But I thought that was funny. And, but I was sitting there thinking, I mean, I had to stand up and like give them a standing ovation and say the entire evening, yeah. you are the only girl team. Um, that And they were so young. I think the eldest is like 25. So women are, women are coming for the ICT industry in South Africa. And yeah, it's just a matter of time. Just a matter of time, you're right. So you do this as a mom as well. Yes. And we are done about what you're doing, um, not going into motherhood. I want to know, in what way would you say that motherhood has empowered you? It made me to fight for myself. Yeah? Yeah. And what do I mean by that? I think when you are a young adult or you're a teenager, mm-hmm. You're just going about life, right? And I think motherhood made me fight for what I deserve, like what I'm worth, right? And if I can prove my worth and fight for what I'm worth, then someone else's 24 hours 
monitoring and watching and shadowing me. Mm. And they feed off that energy. And motherhood has taught me a lot about energy as well. Right? When I'm having the most terrible day, I need to park in the garage and leave that all behind. Um, if I'm having a migraine, I still need to get home and play puppets. Because if I get there and I'm sulking or I'm down um, and this little person on the other side of the door opens the door and she's excited to see me and my energy is flat, it affects her. And children take things so personally. They do. Right? So if you don't do stuff, they start questioning, does mommy love me? So yeah, it's. I wouldn't say it's faking it. I, I, I feel it's taught me so much about sacrificing selflessly and reading energy. And telling when someone doesn't like something just by reading their energy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, I just love being a mom. God. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so funny because everyone in my home always jokes around and they say, dude, we never saw you as a mom. Like, yes, you're the eldest, so you become a deputy mom by default. Mm. But we never saw you as a mother, you know. But I had Robin and it just, it just changed my outlook on parenthood entirely. And I just, I love being a mom. What has it taught you about you? That I'm kind. That I'm, that I'm kind. Because I, I didn't know that I was kind. Children force you to look really deep. And it's taught me that I, that I work hard for people that I love. And it's been such a great experience learning that about myself. Because... And it's not I work hard because I have to, because I have to provide, because she goes to daycare. But it's because you realize if you don't do it for her, no one else is going to do it for her. And you're not doing it for you, in essence. You might enjoy the job that you do every single day, but you work hard for others. So, I struggle a lot with mental health and depression and all that. Oh. So I always ask people oh. this. <laughs> oh, that's, that's for me, I became a single mom when my daughter was nine months. Mm. Um, and I think single mothers out there have never envisioned being single mothers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't wake up and you're like, I want to have a baby and be single. <laughs> mm. You want to have a baby and be married and have a happy family. And for a brief moment, I had that. And then things happen. And the reality of having this baby and going back home, you know, and having to now figure out how do I become a mom and a dad to this child. And certain moments will just drag you to a depressive state, at least, right? Where you feel less of or you feel, I can't do this because um, it's not my role as a woman to do it. Or I wish I could, but I know I'm limited here because... For some reason, nature also speaks to you because you, you're a woman, you can't. And yeah, I had to deal a lot. I mean, I I joke around and I say, well, at this point, if, if I wasn't seeing my therapist, that I'd be a millionaire right now. Mm-hmm. I was about to ask you, uh, then, how do you actually work around that? Yeah, therapy state? helped. Okay. And I actually wrote a tweet, I think a week ago, and I said, Corporate has such a bad outlook on therapy. I think it's just like maybe society in general. I think society. Yeah. It's terrible. So we were having, I was in a meeting <laughs> with a colleague, with some colleagues, and the meeting was about to end. And I, my next meeting was my therapy session with my therapist. And I said, guys, I have to go meeting my therapist in an hour. And these women turn around and they say, are you okay? Yes. <laughs> it's just though something has to be broken for you to actually go oh see a therapist. Oh my goodness. So I laughed. And I was yeah. like, yeah, sure, I'm okay. They're like, yeah, but you said you're going to a therapist. And I was like, yes. And and something has to be wrong. But they were genuinely concerned. Yeah. It was like, oh, because the, the other one sent me a text later on. And she said, oh, Dudu, I'm praying for you. <laughs> And I was like, I'm praying for you every single day. I could give you my therapist numbers oh, if you need someone to talk. <laughs> right? But it's it's just that perception. And, and I remember when I started seeing my therapist as well. Hmm. Well, how our relationship started was because I, in my previous job, I, I, I had a an, an incident of sexual harassment at the workplace. And oh. that was a very difficult and dark moment for me. Um, and that's when I started... Um, 
to see it to seek therapy and after i had i dealt with i at least dealt with those those shadows and i navigated myself back and and fought for myself and became a strong person and and could voice out my voice um, I decided to continue with therapy because I realized, yes, one part of me was mm. violated and it made me fragile. But while we were having these discussions with this individual, I realized there's so many things and so many pieces of this puzzle that generally, and even in the black culture, you do not talk about certain things with your parents. Yes. Or you don't you don't dare speak out loud about these things, even with your friends, because it's it's shunned upon, mm. right? You don't talk about divorce at a young age. We keep quiet about it. And it's just a lot we don't talk it's about. It's a lot we don't talk about as black people. And it's just that culture of saying, strong, you know, let's, you know, she became a single parent at 25, you know, and you're like, hold on. But we need to have conversations about why people get end up getting married at a very young age. Yes, yeah. it's a personal decision, but... This is, we don't have discussions with our own families about pre-marriage, you know? No one talks to you about no. this. And even when we get premarital counseling from your pastors, they talk about the spiritual angle of things. The realities around finances and, and emotional communication and some of your other perceptions that you bring into a relationship as individuals, we don't discuss mm. because everyone ha- else is happy and then things go wrong and then you go home and you and you're shocked because you're thinking what's wrong with me and no one else talks about it but also even at work on a professional space nothing has to go wrong for you to seek therapy i believe therapy is such a, a vital resource i would say for everyone because we all need to put things into perspective. We all need to have an out of, I say to my therapist, it's an out of body experience. You need to step out of Lerato mm. and look at Lerato and, and get away from our victim mentality and say, hold on, but what am I doing here that's wrong? Okay, I agreed to do this, but I feel bad afterwards. Why am I carrying guilt so much? What's the yeah. root of this guilt? Why do I snap every time my child drops a cup? Is, mm. Do I need to unlearn certain parental traits? So yeah, it's 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 a sad perception that community or society has around therapy. But I'm such an advocate of therapy. <laughs> it's bad, you know. I tell my partner all the time, "You must see a therapist." And he's like, "No, I don't. I'm an African therapy. <laughs> I don't have anything to speak." Yeah. Actually, what you're highlighting is so important because I realize how a relationship or being a parent or a mother in particular for me was such a place that prompted me to realize past traumas Mm. and having to peel the layers and realize Mm. and actually identify that situation happening that sparked me to believe that I'm shy or I'm an an introvert or Mm. I can't really express myself, Mm. I'm stupid or whatever. There was a particular incident Incident that that happened happened. yes Mm. so even though at that moment you don't realize there was an incident Mm. you've carried that belief with yourself throughout yeah so i i I really found therapy to work in that sense to actually beautiful mm, to peel out the layers now to end the podcast i wanted you to actually just share some advice first to to give advice to those who feel the pressure to have it all figured out and to give advice to those who feel the pressure of being the first. Oh. In anything in the room, oh. amongst men and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Breathe. Um, and I'm saying it's okay, breathe, because the first few months in this role was daunting. I'd walk in a room. I mean, um, my assistant always says, you're so confident. You know? Like, she'll say, you... Before you do an interview or you walk in a in a presentation, you'll talk about how nervous you are, and then you get there and you're like speaking and you're engaging. And um, and I say to her, it's it's funny. I spent a lot of my childhood not. I I was an introvert. Like I barely had a lot of friends, and I spent a lot of my childhood reading, <laughs> a lot of reading, and I read a lot of philosophy <laughs> for a young oh. kid, and and. And, and some fiction, and that's why I cannot stand fiction now. Um, 
But I do recall watching one particular morning and my first ever job at Northwest University. Um, and I watched um, a clip of Oprah's clip on surrendering. Mm. And she was talking about her her role and how she got to do the, the Oprah Winfrey show and how the that movie, what was it called? Um, that she did with Whoopi Goldberg. Is it The Color Purple? The Color Purple paved the way for her career and how she went for the for the auditions and she didn't get the part yes, and how devastated she was. When I, when I was watching that interview, while I was watching that, that clip and she was expressing that, I saw a lot of myself in failing, in moments of failure or moments of trying something and thinking this is not going to work out mm-hmm. and maybe this isn't for me because I'm not from a wealthy family or I'm not from a rich family. And all I could think was breathe, try again. And and you just have to be your own motivator. Um, Maya Angelou says I, I walk in as one, but I stand as, as thousands. And I took that very personally because when I do the work that I do or in stages or whatever, I try to think I'm representing a whole lot of girls in the township. A whole lot of girls who think you have to be from a wealthy family or you have to have to a sugar daddy to make it or your parents have to be educated. My daddy is a taxi driver and my mom was a domestic worker. Um, but it's it's just breathe. It's okay. You know, you, you'll be fine. And what is for you will be for you. And the pressures of making it at 20... Look, God has a purpose. I, I'm I'm a firm believer in, in divine purpose. And I and I always say, it sounds naive, our purpose on this earth is to be of service to each other. If you do anything that feels like you help someone and you feel great when you go to bed and you can't help to smile because you help someone, you're much closer to your purpose than, than closer to living in a mansion. And that's much bigger than that. Lastly, what is the one thing that you'd thank your young self for? Thank you for loving books <laughs> and reading <laughs> and reading because and I'm saying this because it distracted me from a lot of things that people my age were distracted by other things alcohol boys teen pregnancy sex it distracted me from that and I, and focusing on my studies and focusing on books and focusing on on just bettering myself saved me from a whole lot of things because I go back to my township and I see people I grew up with and then I'm just, I'm not better than them. Mm. But we have different struggles now because I chose a different path. And my younger self was obsessed with reading, mm. <laughs> was obsessed with reading. And I owe her a lot because if I wasn't obsessed with that, I mean, I was, I was telling a friend of mine, we met this other guy and I said, oh, you know, he was one of my first few play play boyfriends I wouldn't call him a boyfriend but we were in high school and I liked him and I said you know it's funny he dumped me and I didn't know we were dating (laughs) and and she said why and I said because he said you're too focused you you go sit ass man you know shake it off (laughs) and I was 13 (laughs) and I mean I look back and when I saw him he was like I'm so proud of you you know I I laugh because he calls me sis dude and I'm like Guy. guy, yeah, and I'm like, guy, you're four years older, <laughs> you know. But it's it's the way he he wanted to show respect, and um, yeah. And I look at the girls that my I, I don't know my peers I went to high school with or the, the clique I had, and how our lives turned out, and and some of the people I went to high school. I mean, I went to a township school, Egatlehong, Efuman, and. I made a conscious decision when I was in grade 12 that I, I would follow God and I got saved when I was literally in my trick. And I made a conscious decision. If I'm not studying and lunchtime, I'm out praying. And I, I have to thank my younger self because if I didn't do that, I would be distracted by so many earthly things. And I wouldn't be sitting here on this amazing podcast show. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, thank you so much. Thank, thank you so you much. Thank you for having you me. You know, when I was on my way here, something said, ask her, what is her prayer when she steps out of the, the door every morning? Every day, I thank God for the gift of life. Mm. Because I've lost so many people who helped me get here. And 
and older people in my family, my great grandmother, my grandfather, who my grandmother tells a story that when I was just five years old, he would play around and say, Dudu is going to study and go far. She would be the first in this family to get a PhD. Uh, well, he was done. He'd say, Udlobala komu se. Oh, wow. And I went and I studied abroad. Well, I didn't become a medical doctor. Mm. Um, but I thank God for the gift of life because whilst I'm still alive, I'm still alive, rather. People's prayers manifest in blessings for me. Sure. So I think about the prayers that my family has, my friends have for me. And the fact that I'm still alive, I'm, I might be able to live out those prayers. Just like my grandfather who dreamt that go study abroad. Oh man, thank you so much for sharing thank your you story. I hope me. it inspires everyone, not just ladies our age, but girls from the townships who so. would share the same dream as you. Thank you, Lerato. Thank you so much. Hey, journeyers. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Journey on Earth podcast. Here, every listener who tunes in to listen is never taken for granted. I appreciate every single one of you. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to help the podcast continue bringing you incredible guests by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. You can also share the podcast with your friends and family who may need the message from this episode. If you have a guest or a topic in mind that you would like to suggest with us, hit us up on Instagram page. Our handle is The Journey Unearthed. Until next time, keep on seeking and finding the things that ignite you. Keep on journeying, you journeyers. Chat to you soon. Bye.